Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In today's podcast, I had the pleasure of chatting to Daisy Christodoulou and Jeanette Breen. Daisy is someone who I have greatly admired for a long period of time now. As I prepared for the interview, I thought about how much criticism she would have copped at the time of releasing Seven Myths About Education 10 years ago. Here was this young female educator who wasn't afraid to name and shame some of education's most influential figures at the time. And as, you, as you'll hear in this interview, it didn't seem to have fazed her at all. It was also great to hear from Jeanette Breen and about her journey and how she has used comparative judgment at her school to improve writing. Here is my chat with Daisy Christodoulou and Jeanette Breen. Really excited to be speaking with not one, but two inspiring educators today, Daisy Christodoulou and Jeanette Breen. Thank you both for joining me today. Um, Daisy, I'm going to start with you. Can you please tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you were in today? Sure, definitely. So uh, I started out in, in London, in England, as an English teacher. I taught English to secondary school, uh, to 11 to 18 year olds. Um, so I, di- I did that. Um, I trained on a program called Teach First. So, so I did that for, for a few years. I then went and worked for a group of um, academy schools in London called ARC Schools. And I ended up being head of assessment there. And in 2017, I left to join a really small education assessment organisation called No More Marking. And I'm still there now. And we, uh, so now I work full time at No More Marking on um, an assessment technique called comparative judgment. So comparative judgment is a different way of assessing students' writing. Um, As I say, I've been working there for about five years now. We work with about 2,000 schools in the UK, in the US, and now in Australia. And comparative judgment is this different way of assessing writing. And the thing that got me interested in it, as someone who'd been an English teacher, who'd done a lot of assessment of writing, kind of seen the flaws with it close up, it just was such a, a brilliant new way of, of doing assessment that was so much more powerful, so much more reliable, so much quicker, and could also really help to improve writing too. Um, so that's my quick summary of, of how I ended up uh, uh, where I am, um, and really delighted to be in Australia at the minute with my colleague Jeanette, um, who uh, lives and works in, in, in Melbourne. Um, yeah, working when we're, we're, we're both looking forward to visiting some schools in Australia in the next couple of weeks and, and showing them how comparative judgment works. Yeah, cool. You know, um, I think you're, you're, you know, so well known for your, your thinking and, you know, looking at things with a different perspective. Where do you think that sort of came from? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I really don't know. <laughs> it's a good question, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess comparative judgment is a new way of assessing. I also, I think, you know, we're going to talk about it later, but I wrote a book nearly 10 years ago now um, called Seven Myths About Education, which um encouraged encouraged people to look at education in a slightly different way so so you're right I, I guess I have sort of made those those arguments in my in my life um yeah I'm not quite sure quite sure where it comes from that's a tricky question maybe you have to ask my parents <laughs> yeah 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 um you know and I guess like you would have because you have kind of pushed a few things in in education uh, that are a bit different what sort of challenges have you faced good question <laughs> So I think anyone who's a teacher will tell you that the first year in teaching is really challenging. Yeah. Um, I was teaching in a school. So in England, we have um, a school's inspectorate called Ofsted and Ofsted will come and in, in, inspect a school. And if a school, uh, they give it like one, kind of one of four, four grades and the lowest grade is special measures and then all kinds of kind of special circumstances apply. And the school I was working in, the second term I was there, it went into special measures 
Um, so that was a, a really challenging time. We, the, the, the trainee, there were, there were two of us there on Teach First at the time, and we were given the option to leave the school and go somewhere else and complete our training elsewhere, because once school goes into special measures, that's like the protocol. But we both decided we'd rather stay. Um, so we, we stayed at a time that was really challenging for the school and it was not easy for, I think, either of us. Um, so that was that was hard. Um, you know, lots, of, lots of difficult things there. But I guess like a lot of challenges, really worthwhile. And, you know, you come out the other side and you feel stronger for it. So, yeah, that was, yeah, often look back on that now. Yeah. So when you say it was hard, do you mean like behaviour wise or uh, just, yeah? Yeah, you know, the behaviour was really challenging. That was definitely yeah. one of the things that the Ofsted report got flagged up and I think, you know, correctly. Um, and yeah, so to go in there as a, as a new teacher and on a programme like Teach First, where you don't have, you don't get like like much classroom experience before yeah, you walk in. I'd done a bit of teaching practice before, but, but not a lot. Um, so yeah, the, the behaviour was definitely challenging. Um, um, there were students there who you know, maybe we're not that engaged with learning as well. You can see the point of, of what we were doing. Um, so that was challenging. And then I think, yeah, organisationally, there were there were challenging things about it, like, you know, turnover of senior management, um, turnover of staff generally, um, and that can that can make things think difficult too. So yeah, in lots of ways, it was it was it was difficult. But I think, you know, staying there and working through it and getting to the end of the year and getting to the end of, uh, I stayed for three years eventually um, mm -hmm. and building those relationships with, with the students was, uh, you know, really, really, really lovely um, to, to do that in those difficult circumstances. Yeah. And do you think, you know, having those challenges kind of set you down the path of looking at, you know, other ways of doing things? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, when, you know, when you're in an environment where you think maybe things aren't working out um, and that's not wasn't just for me, as I say, I was in a school where, where things weren't necessarily working out. Um, you're always trying to think, well, what you know, what's the issue here? What could we do better? Um, so that certainly got me thinking uh, about how to do things better. And, yeah, I, I imagine if I'd gone into a kind of a great school where everything was working smoothly, I probably wouldn't have been as you know eager to question or to um, you know think about things as much. I think the other thing that it sparked in me is that <clears throat> a lot of the advice that I felt I was getting from sort of teacher training or just generally the kind of status quo at that time was, you know, it wasn't working. And then part of you thinks, well, is that me? You know, am I implementing mm. this advice really badly? And then you sort of look around and I'd look around the school and the teachers who were succeeding, like the experienced teachers who were succeeding in that environment, they weren't really necessarily following that advice either yeah <laughs> and yeah. so you look at it and think well maybe this advice maybe there's an issue with it <laughs> so when I talk about this I'm talking about things you know a real common thing sort of 10-15 years ago when I was training was to say you know there were things that went around like well you know a teacher shouldn't be speaking for more than 10 seconds mm. like that and um you know you don't you don't want to be the, the the sage on the stage you want to be the guide on the side and you don't need to be yeah. telling students things they need to be discovering things for themselves and whenever I set up lessons like this they kind of just wouldn't work <laughs> and as I say you yeah. start to is that me and then actually yeah. you're turning around and looking at the successful teachers and going well actually when they're doing things when you know people are not looking they're not really doing that either uh, and then yeah. you start to dig into it and, and do the research and you go well maybe the reason that they're not doing it is because it really doesn't work and then you look at the research and you go actually the research when you dig into it about the evidence of how the mind works this kind of discovery learning that's being advocated is not a great idea and that actually yeah. when students start out learning they need guidance they do need um someone to, to guide them through it and to provide uh, some kind of um a sort of you know direct instruction and explicit information about about what they need to do and you know when you don't get that it, it, it learning doesn't work as well and i think yeah one of the things about working in a challenging school i think if you work in a school perhaps where there's uh, you know more advantaged pupils and there's lots of people who maybe want to learn actually you can probably have bad methods and get away with it a bit um, so the teaching those you know those teaching methods will still not be as effective but they might be masked by the general other advantages students have whereas when you use ineffective methods in a difficult you know challenging situation then you really see how they don't work and you really see yeah. the problem so yeah I guess that was a part of it yeah you know I've, I've had that exact experience where I've been at a school um so I was speaking to you before about um you know how when I first transitioned into primary teaching 
um, you know, from high school. So I, I didn't really have, I, well, I didn't have the experience and the knowledge mm. as to how to teach at that primary level. Mm. Um, but I had this kind of ideal um, vision of, of, you know, wanting to do like your, your project-based learning stuff because it, you know, it sounds great. And, yeah. and so I started up um, uh, running these, different projects and you know I had people from external coming in and um, you know we had these big presentations and the the kids we were working in groups and so outside looking in it does look really good you know and your finished product you have you have your the best person from each group leading the presentation and and so a lot of them they do look really good um, but then as I you know started to reflect and started to uh, engage with the educational research I started to, to realize look what did the, the students actually learn? What what will they probably remember? That you know, some of them might remember having a bit of fun. You know, um, some of them might have remembered putting the video together, who they worked with. Um, but would many of them actually have remembered anything uh, to do with what the learning intentions were? Probably not. <laughs> you know, and I think that's what it, what it comes down to is, is like, what are your actual learning intentions? What do you want the students to be getting out of this? Um, you know, instead, I basically wasted wasted a whole term of learning, um, you know, on, on this one project. Yeah. Which in hindsight, yeah, probably wasn't that effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think you're right. I think sometimes these projects, they do kind of superficially look good. And a lot of the times actually the students can enjoy them and they, they can be fun. But as you say, I think it's some thinking about actually, you know, what, what are the students learning, what are they taking away from it? And, uh, you know, certainly I would have, have that experience. Um, certainly, you know, I, I started out teaching a, a kind of project-based curriculum and you know it was difficult because it, it, there were lots of things about it that the students did enjoy but there mm. were also lots of them who were for example very weak readers and so you know I design activities to kind of get around that because the the, the lessons were project-based and there wasn't really time to stop and teach them how to read um but so you know you would have these projects that often they, they might find quite fun but you would look at the end of it and think but they're still not able to read and that's yeah. quite a fundamental issue so, yeah. you know, if we've got students who perhaps, as I say, yeah, having a project where there's some, some fun involved and, um, you know, maybe there's some interesting video clips they get to watch or whatever and, you know, stuff like that going on, they, they can enjoy that. But, you know, if they're coming out of school not, not able to, to read effectively, that's, that's kind of an issue. And so that was certainly the, the thing that got me thinking about project-based learning and some of the flaws of it. Yeah, you know, we started um, kind of alluding to some of the points from your book, Seven Myths About Education. But, you know, it was such a powerful book, you know, and, and I'm sure at the time, uh, you know, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. it was really uh, pushing quite a few uh, sore points there. And and I'm really interested to know if there is anything that you would change or, or add to it now, 10 years later. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. So I, I can't quite believe it was uh, 10 years ago. Um um, I think, you know, I, I got a lot of criticism about it at the time. I got a lot of pushback. Um, I think I felt I, I felt I didn't necessarily get constructive criticism. <laughs> I got a lot mm. of criticism that was just, you know, how dare you write this? Um, but amongst the more constructive criticisms, I think um, I did get a lot around assessment. And, and that was why I wanted to write. I wrote my second book, which was about assessment. Um, so seven myths about education is, is quite a lot about the curriculum, about knowledge in the curriculum. And so one question I'd get again and again is people saying to me, well, um, you know, you're saying there's not enough knowledge in the curriculum. I think that the exam system is that, that, that shows there is enough knowledge in the curriculum and the exam system is very drill and kill. And in particular, people would say, you know, it, it means that students are spoon fed with, with knowledge and, and that's a problem. And, and so, yeah, I did get all these interesting questions about how would this work in terms of assessment? And the reason I got really into assessment is there's a phrase, it's a bit of a, a jargony phrase, but that I quite like where it says assessments operationalize the curriculum. Like it's often when you see assessment, you see exams that, that, that you see what the curriculum kind of really is or what it's really trying to do. And so I, I got a lot of questions about assessment and exams and I sort of thought well, that's something I'd really like to to focus on more, and and I and I did. So um, that's that's the subject of my my second book. Yeah. Um, so I would say that yeah, that would be the the, the sort of the biggest thing um, that I sort of didn't cover, and that's why I went on to to write another one because it did cover that. Um, I don't. I think looking back, I don't, I don't think I've, I've I've changed my mind on on any of the things there. Um, 
yeah, I, you know, I, I still feel like I'd, I'd stand by a lot of those those key messages there. So, what do you what you know? If you did add on a myth about mm. assessment, what would the myth be? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm thinking about this now, and there are a lot of um, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings about assessment. I've also written, you know, I've written a third book about technology, and what I would mm. say, and I work for an ed- education technology company now. So, if you were going to ask me now, like, what's a major kind of uh, a myth or idea that's they're doing the round that's really problematic? It would be something that I think encompasses the curriculum assessment and technology. And I, and I hear it a lot. And I spoke about it a bit in Seven Myths. So one of the myths in Seven Myths about education is, you, you know, you can always just Google it. So people yeah. would say, well, kids don't need to know anything nowadays. They can just look it up on the Internet. And that's a problem. That's not the case. You, you have to know things. You need things in long term memory to be able to think. You can't outsource them to Google because you have limited space in working memory to grapple with problems. Uh, and when we look something up on Google, it's taking up a valuable slot in, in working memory. So it's the reason why it's still important to know your times tables, because when you're solving a complex math problem, you know, you depend on that more basic knowledge to make it fluent. And if you are always stopping to type things into Google, you're going to forget kind of what the problem was that you started with. It's the same when you're reading. You have to know what the vocabulary means. You, yeah. you can't, you know, if you've got a thousand word text and you don't understand a hundred words in it, how well are you going to be able to read it even if you've got Google or a dictionary at your side? So you have to know things. So that's one of the myths I picked in seven myths. If I was going to pick like an eighth myth now that would tie up curriculum assessment and technology, it's similar to that Google one, but it, it would cover a lot of the things that I hear people talking about now about to do with AI, artificial intelligence. So I've heard a lot of people saying with the arrival of you know these chatbots, large language models like um, ChatGPT, mm-hmm. I hear so many people who say, um, "Well, you know, if if computers, we, we need to be setting assessments that computers can't solve." Mm. You know, people say, "What does it say about our assessment if a computer can solve it?" And so people are saying, "We need to be setting harder assessments that computers can't solve." In order to, you know, if a so if a computer can do it, what's the point of a student learning it? And that, from you know, I hear this all the time, and it baffles yeah. me. I can't believe, you know, I hear really smart, intelligent people say it, and why it baffles me is I think surely if you stop and think for a few minutes, you will realise the flaws in that argument. So computers are really good at loads of stuff. Are we seriously saying that we can only assess our students with problems that are too hard for a computer to solve? Like, in which case, are we seriously saying we're going to have to assess, we're going to have to assess six-year-olds with maths that a a postgraduate mathematician can't do? Is that what we're saying? So, you know, that's, I feel like, a a huge issue with this argument. And again, you know, the the huge issue with this argument is that it forgets this whole long-term memory, working memory problem, which is that in order to solve the problems computers can't solve, we have to grapple with the problems they can solve. We have to work our way through the fundamentals. There is no shortcut. You can't leapfrog. And the analogy I like to use here is with chess. So chess computers have been better than humans at chess for probably a couple of decades now. If, you know, an eight-year-old wants to learn chess, do you say to them, don't bother learning the pieces? The computer can do that. You know, you can just start with a strategy. Of course you don't. You realise that in order to grapple with strategy, you've got to learn how the pieces move. And it's the same with all academic subjects. You you can't leapfrog these basic skills. Like the higher order skills and the strategy arise out of the more fundamental basic knowledge. Mm. So I I just feel like I really think this is an important one to confront because the more AI gets better, the more I'm hearing this. Yeah. And I just think it's it's really damaging and and could cause a lot of problems. Yeah, really good point there, you know. And I I think like... as as teachers as educators like sometimes we forget what our purpose is you know like we're we're trying to teach our students how to learn things you know and how to um do things certain ways and and that's more what it's about it's not necessarily about just what the end product is but you know how did they get there what sort of things have we taught them to get to that end product absolutely um and another thing i'll always say about assessment is the point about assessment is kind of the process not just the product you know, what have mm. you learned? What's changed in long-term memory as a result of that of that learning? You know, it isn't just about that kind of one-off moment in the exam. Um, and that's what we've got to re- remember as well when we think about assessment. Cool. So um, the uh, the second edition of Seven Myths About Education, we've now got the 
the eighth one ready to go. Eighth left to rule them all. Yeah. Um, so next up, can we just have a chat about, you know, what what is comparative judgment? Yeah, so it's a different way of assessing writing. So the traditional way, which I'm sure you know, plenty of listeners will be familiar with, is that you have a response that's been written by a student, so like an essay, a narrative, what have you, and you have a mark scheme, you have some kind of rubric. And what you're doing as a marker is reading the writing, comparing to the mark scheme. And that's a traditional way of assessing writing. It's how it works kind of in lots of countries. It's how it's worked historically. The problem with that approach is it is very unreliable. So yeah. it's a, that, that approach is kind of an absolute judgment approach where you're looking at one thing and trying to place it onto an absolute scale. The problem with that is human beings are not very good at absolute judgment. So comparative judgment, what you do is you scan in your pieces into our system and they will appear on your computer screen a pair at a time. So you will see two pieces and your job is to read them both and to say, which is the better piece of writing? Is it the one on the left or is it the one on the right? And you don't just make one decision like that. You will make a series of decisions like that. And in the big national projects we run, it's not just um, uh, um, you who's making the decisions. Your colleagues and colleagues in lots of schools will make the decisions. And then we will combine together all of those decisions and use them to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing. Um, and as I say, this feels very counterintuitive. It feels a bit odd, but mm. it gives you much more reliable results because as I say, it's, it goes beyond education and beyond um, assessment. The reason why traditional assessment people struggle with it is it goes against the grain of the way the human mind works. Human beings are not very good at making those absolute judgments. And that's not just true if you're making judgments of writing. That's true if you're making judgments of a whole range of phenomena. So things like height, color, pitch, temperature, humans are just not very good at it. And the example I always give is imagine someone walks into the room you're in right now and I say to you, how tall is that person? That's an absolute judgment. Imagine two people walk into the room you're in and I say to you, who's taller, the person on the left, the person on the right? That's a comparative judgment. And the comparative judgment, I hope you can see from that, is much simpler. I think you always get that comparative judgment right and you'd always be in agreement with your, with your colleague, your friends. Whereas I think that with the absolute judgment, like how tall is that person, you might get in the ballpark, you might get close, but you're not going to get it right every time. And so what we do with comparative judgment, people agree. They really do. It's you get these much higher levels of consistency. So that's one huge benefit of the approach. It's also very quick. It's quick to make the decisions. And the other thing is because you're not really tied to a mark scheme as tightly as you would be with traditional assessment, it actually frees things up a bit. It gives you the potential to organize teaching and learning in different ways, to really think about what causes good writing, um, and that's something we've done a lot of work on as well. So we would talk about the three benefits of comparative judgment as being reliability, efficiency and validity. Um, and, and as I say, you know, we work with a lot of schools and, and, and we see those benefits all the time. Um, you know, what do you what do you say to teachers who, uh, you know, they're, they're more used to using a rubric, yeah. uh, for instance, and they like using rubrics because they're able to kind of distinguish between, you know, who's good at spelling, who's got good vocabulary, um, you know, who's who's able to write using specific uh, techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what would you say to them? Yeah, so I would say to them, I was one of those teachers. And I think Jeanette mm-hmm. and I were only discussing this the other day, how both of us in our previous career spent a lot of time not just working with rubrics, but creating them. So I'm someone who spent a lot of time on rubrics. And in a sense, the thing that drove me to comparative judgment was seeing the flaws of rubrics up close. So look, of course, there is nothing wrong with some kind of statement of the kinds of things you want to be seeing in a piece of writing. Absolutely not. Of course, you you want to be knowing what the technical accuracy, what the points are you want to be teaching. You want to be knowing all of those things. You know, of course, you know, one of the things I say is you want a curriculum. You know, that's something, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You want some kind of idea of what you should be teaching. So all those things are are really important. Where it gets tricky is when you start saying, um, I'm going to take those statements and use them to judge writing. Because all of those statements can be interpreted in very different ways. And actually, the favorite example I like to give from this is actually um, a maths example which is a statement, I can compare two fractions to see which is larger. Now, that is a really precisely defined statement, you think. But actually, you can define that in ways that students find trivially easy and ways that they find practically impossible. (laughs) 
So if you ask them like what's bigger, one seventh or six seventh, they all get it right. If you ask them what's bigger, five sevenths or five ninth, most of them get it wrong. So a lot of the meaning of these statements, you only get real meaning and precision from them when you kind of, you know, when you when you have an example, right? And that's one of the things we talk about a lot, that meaning is often not communicated through definitions and through statements. It's communicated yeah. through exemplification. And that's what comparative judgment does. You know, you're looking at actual examples of student writing. And so, you know, take a typical statement that's on an English rubric, um, can use vocabulary with originality and flair. That is very vague. That is hard mm. for teachers to define precisely. One teacher might look at a piece of writing and go, yeah, I think it does. And another will look at it and go, no, I think it doesn't. And again, when we look at all the data on this, there are really high levels of disagreement. So the thing I always say to people is about rubrics is I know they feel objective. I know they feel like they're this kind of statement and, and, and they have this meaning and, and they give us that common language. So people often say about a rubric, they give us a common language. And my response is always, when we look at the data, they're not as objective as you think. There are mm. high levels of disagreement in how people interpret them. So I always say they don't really give us a shared language. They give us the illusion of a shared language, which is actually quite yeah. dangerous because it's as though you've got two people who are using the word cat, but one person's using the word cat to refer to a four-legged mammal and the other person is using the word cat to refer to a window, right? And so mm. we're using the same words, but we mean very different things. And the other thing I'd say is people, when I talk about this, about people, you know, the challenges of interpreting rubrics um, consistently, I think people sometimes think to themselves, well, the problem is that some people use it right and get it right and other people get it wrong. <laughs> and so the trick is we have to find the people who use the rubric correctly and train everybody else to agree with them. And if that was the issue, that would be a problem, but it might be solvable. But the problem is actually worse than that. The problem isn't that it's just that you have two people using a rubric disagreeing with each other. The problem is actually that even the same person will disagree with themselves at different times. Yeah. So if you ask someone to mark, and they've done really fascinating studies on this, you ask someone to mark an essay on day one, you come back and ask them to mark it again like a week or a month later, do they give it the same mark? No, they don't. So <laughs> it's not just that, uh, you know, maybe one person's using the word cat to mean one thing and one person using it to mean another. It's that the same person at different moments in time will use the word cat <laughs> to mean different things. <laughs> so yeah. my line is always that rubrics feel very objective. In reality, they are quite subjective. There are high levels of disagreement. And that is empirically, that's empirically proven. You know, we can see that when we look at the levels of disagreement between markers and within markers. Comparative judgment is weird. It feels very subjective. You are looking at two pieces of writing and saying, which is the better piece of writing? And I will be honest with you, when you first do it, it does feel a bit wrong. Because you're thinking, well, where's the guidelines? Like, what, what's, you know, uh, yeah, where is my tick box? But again, it's an empirical question. When we look at the data, when we look at the results, it may feel subjective, but the numbers that come out are far more objective. So as I say, we can literally compare this and we do compare it um, when we run sort of demo sessions and all our sessions, you can get a reliability metric and you can compare those metrics. And for a given set amount of time, you'll be getting better agreement and better consistency with comparative judgment than with traditional judgment. So. That would be the issue I would say about about rubrics, you know, um, that they, they they don't give you that objectivity, you might think. Yeah, you know, so we've uh, here in Australia, we've got uh, our national assessment coming up, the NAPLAN. Um, you know, do you think comparative judgment could work at that sort of level? So there's no reason in principle why it couldn't. In terms of scale, it's absolutely possible. And comparative judgment works best at scale. So uh, I would tell you, you know, the biggest projects we've run in England um, we've run a project where we assessed, I think, um, about 115, 120,000 11 year olds. And our system was able to handle that. Um, and, you know, we had, I think we processed with that, uh, you know, over a million teacher judgments. And I think we had about 10,000 teachers judging, something like that. So, in terms of scalability, absolutely comparative judgment can work at those levels. And we've proven that. And, you know, we can, we can, we can show that. Um, 
I think, you know, the other the other interesting things you've got to consider is whilst we've used it for some very, very large scale assessments, um, all of our assessments are fairly low stakes. So we're not a government organisation. Schools choose to work with us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, you have the kind of issue that um, once something is high stakes, how do people feel about that? You know, one thing people often say about comparative judgment is if you used it for a public exam, how would students and parents feel about work being kind of judged in that way? And and that's a legitimate question. Um, yeah. So, you know, that that certainly is. But in terms of the kind of the scalability of the process and the ability to get reliable judgments at scale, it is definitely possible. Yeah, cool. Jeanette, I might uh, might bring you into the conversation now. Um, firstly, yeah, just if you can just tell us a bit about your own background and then, you know, how you kind of um, came into contact with comparative judgment. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brendan. Um, so I've been in education for over 20 years. I've worked in Victoria across four different schools. Um, I've lived in New South Wales for a little while. So seen that school system. Um, I've lived in the in Papua New Guinea. So I was part of that school system. So I've sort of, um, I've lots of relatives in India. So I've sort of been in and out of schools there as well. Um, seeing different practice. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a long journey of, of watching different education systems and being part of um, several different schools. And I think the the big learning for me, even in Victoria, um, just across four schools, is how different they all are and um, how much, um, you know, that can affect what's going on in a school. And, and, you know, you can go from one school to another and have a complete variance in, in the way practice is delivered and assessment is delivered. You know, we all have a lot of choices over assessment schedules and, you know, whatever school you're in, you're kind of, um, you know, you're working in that little bubble, um, not necessarily knowing whether or not your practice is, is um, you know, better than, than something else you could be doing. Um, and so perhaps for me, um, I was on a journey when I, I started a master's where I, when I began to look at the overarching ideas around things like assessment, um, yeah, I began to ask myself some questions about the practice that I was part of. Um, and the practice that I had been part of um, across four different schools and um, over lots of years in education and, and just being um, curious about, um, you know, whether it was the best the best way forward. And I think my capstone project um, was in writing, you know, that was something that we'd picked up on our um, AIP at the school I was um, working on. So, yeah, it sort of became part of my project to build a big, um, a big uh, progression, a big writing progression, um, to, you know, to help us in our new process with writing to be able to measure it accurately. So I set about, um, you know, with a, a couple of colleagues building this enormous writing progression, you know, mapped to yeah. the way we were delivering writing at the time. And uh, it took hours and hours and a couple of bottles of wine and, you know, lots and lots yeah. of um, collegiality and, and all this wonderful work that we thought we were doing, looking at lots of documents and research and um, things from uni other universities that were linked to this particular writing program that we were using. Um, and we produced something that we thought, you know, was very impressive and we sort of fed out and, and you know, I think the first thing I noticed, which I didn't want to admit to myself for a while, um, was, yeah, that that it was not necessarily ticking the boxes um, in terms of us being able to assess writing accurately, to be able to agree with it To And I, I just, yeah, began to question the process of moderation. Um, so, which is what led me to that exploration of, of how how to assess writing better. So that was my journey. Yeah, cool. So just going back on a couple of things there, but I've got to ask you this one question. Uh, you know, you've been through a few different systems. Um, did you find anything that was consistently working well across the different schools? Um, I found that... Uh, the leadership, the kind of leadership that you worked under um, was, you know, consistently going to make a difference as to the conditions for growth in the school. So, um, you know, I learned lots of things from having different principals and, and that I worked for um, and, and, you know, uh, what, what was sort of what conditions for success were created um, and, yeah, I think the the last couple of schools I worked at too, um, you know, were very linked to instruction and to those top tiers of learning as well. Not so much 
um, pulling from the bottom, but pulling from the top. So that that was quite different thinking for me at the time. And so, yeah, um, thinking about a cohort from a different point um, instead of from the bottom, the, from the tail end, from the top end, I, I certainly began to think differently about the standards, I think. Um, so what, in, in terms of having higher expectations, do you mean? Yeah, or? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think we can become very focused on those students that can't. Um, and that really yeah. was a big shift in thinking for me. Um, and the other thing, you know, you, you mentioned before I was listening carefully and you often hear those success stories in education of um, teachers who worked at difficult schools. And as Daisy was mentioned, that's when you can see um, how well instruction is working. Well, for me, I've worked at a lot of um, very high-performing schools, actually, okay. um, yep. in, in really wonderful suburbs where parents, um, you know, care about the learning the flip side of that, I think, is that you never really know as a teacher whether it's your instruction that's making a difference or whether it's the children and what the background knowledge and, and what they're bringing to the table, um, what's making the difference in their results. And so often I think, um, so those are the other questions I, I began to ask myself is, um, you know, how convinced was I that what I was doing in the classroom was actually making a difference to them or, you know, would they just be learning anyway, um, regardless of what I was bringing to them? So that's when I began to think about, um, if those kids are already at the top end of the scale, if they're already performing well, how did I know that what I was doing for them was going to make them even better? Yeah, awesome. And so what kind of made you head down the path of focusing on writing? Um, so writing, as I said, was that one which, you know, makes sense when you think about it now. The students um, at the school at the time were um, excellent readers. We had great reading results. Um, you know, our spelling data was great, grammar, grammar punctuation was a little low and writing was low. So that makes sense too when you think about those skills in writing um, and our maths data was good too. So I suppose that that became, like a lot of schools, the impetus for the next thing that you pull into your, um, you know, your annual implement, implementation plan. So that was all part of our um, our driving force. And so, you know, in, in trying to build improvement, a lot of schools will go on a journey um, where they they're looking for the best way so you know you bring in you might bring in some coaching or you might bring in a program or something that's going to assist the teachers as best you can um, to bring consistency all, all those practices are great practices and and I was part of all of those and so yeah that exploration of writing uh, writing being the thing that we wanted to shift and change we began to collect lots of data to survey the students um, you know to sort of find out what we were doing um, and whether it was making a difference to them um, and uh, you know and I came across the, the realisation that, um, that I, we needed to be able to control the small steps um, because the first set of data that we got from our very first involvement with No More Marking um, could, showed very clearly that what we were teaching them was not embedded at all. So as soon as we released them to write, we weren't seeing any of the things that we were delivering in instruction. I'm a big believer in input equaling output. So if we're spending all this time in the classroom, mm. Um, trying to get these instructional techniques across and we're building all these lessons and working consistently. We've got consistent planning and ticking off all those boxes that we know make a difference to teachers. Why weren't we getting the results? So um, so that's where the no more marking data, I think that very first comparative judgment project, um, you know, which, yeah, that, that led to a journey of um, being vulnerable about what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and um, I just want to dig into a couple of things that you said there. Firstly, uh, just looking at when you first uh, you know, started looking around and then you came across comparative judgment, when you put that to your principal, what was the conversation like? Uh, yeah, that was a really funny conversation. If he listens to his podcast, um, he'll have a laugh about this. But yeah, his, his first thing was um, Jeanette, don't be silly. You know, you spent hours and hours on that that wonderful rubric. Um, it's terrific. You know, it ticks all the boxes and we all love it. We're using it. Um, and, you know, it's not that we threw it out. It's just that we stopped using it for moderation and assessment. We, we use it now as a progression for learning and we continue to build on it so that, you know, now we can see what the steps are and we've added to those. So we didn't completely um, get rid of it. But no, he, he was pretty convinced that we didn't need anything else um, and at the time, and he was very happy with the work that had been done and very positive about it. Um, and so, yeah, just over time, we had, uh, you know, lots of discussions about some of the gaps I was seeing in those moderation meetings. But I think the, the main thing that high, highlighted it for us was, um, was lockdown. Um, so, you know, in Victoria, which experienced um, two six-month lockdowns from school across a couple of years, 
Um, I think we had the opportunity, um, as awful as it was, we had the opportunity to have a spotlight on instruction that no other state um, had in the same way. Um, and we could see pretty clearly with students missing school when we came back and we asked them to write and we were sitting in moderations with the teachers. Um, yeah, it was just um, really, really difficult to see um, how how what we were doing in the way we were doing it was making any difference and, and moderation wasn't helping either. We couldn't found assessment just absolutely impossible uh, over that time. So this was the only writing assessment um, that made sense to us and allowed us to do something about the writing. Yeah. And so when you were talking about, um, you know, you want the input to equal output, what were, what sort of strategies were teachers using uh, to teach writing beforehand? Um, so we were actually using um, a program called Six Plus One Traits. And I think it's pretty commonly used. And, and, you know, like you were describing before with inquiry learning and like many other programs, it sounds wonderful. You know, it's all about giving students a voice. It's all about, you know, mentor texts. It's all about, um, you know, looking at all different genres. It's It's got lots of lovely things that that did make a difference and that the students really enjoyed and but the biggest thing I think that I began to question was it um, promoted students having a choice over what they were writing so you could have a whole classroom full of students all writing something completely different and so then you know input equaling output all of a sudden I began to question how I was going to provide feedback to all of those students and how I was going to monitor what they're all doing. And by the time you sit down with one student and do a, a writing conference, which took half of the lesson, um, all of the other students are embedding mistakes um, that you can't get around to because there's no way you could keep up with it. And it, I just felt like one of those mice running on a wheel. It was just impossible to keep up with monitoring yeah. their writing. Um, and so... Yeah, my learning around whole class feedback, um, how much easier it is to correct things and correct them quickly. Um, and, and once again, we use the normal marking data, the comparative judgment data. Um, we use the children's samples of their sentences with them in class. And it's, it's a great way of, you know, um, of actually being able to have a look at their writing. It's the same process. You know, we ask them to compare two sentences or two paragraphs or two bits of writing and to make their own judge, it's it's exactly the same um, principle, and and it works really well in the classroom as well. And they they can see it because they've got the example in front of them, and they can fix things um, immediately. And and we could see the the power of that. Yeah, and, and that was kind of going to be my next question: was you know how are you using comparative judgment um, at your school? You know the data, and then um, you know what do you do after you've collected the data? Yeah, so so we do, um, yeah, so I guess that, yeah, so it's what you do with the data, isn't it? So it's the input-output output mm. ideas. So we take the data and and we we look at a standard. So um, actually we just released a blog about this today, but we take something that matches because we get those three pieces of information from the, the comparative judgment data. We get the writing age, we get the scaled score, and we get the NAPLAN predictor. So we can take the age group. So for me, I've got year four. So we can take a piece of writing that sits at a standard, you know, according to those three pieces of data. And we can say, well, if this is what we would expect from a typical year four student, you know, we can see the instruction is in, embedded to a point. You know, we can see the sentence of a work um, fits that standard. We can match that to our curriculum. We can match it to the writing revolution and some of the things that we're um, using there. If we can see the standard, then we can make an assumption that everything sitting underneath it on that continuum falls below and everything above it is above. So, you know, we spend a lot of time um, having a shared idea as a, a group of teachers around what the standard is. And we, and we can get that from the comparative judgment data because we can see. And it's not just us that's decided it. We know that it's been judged by multiple um, pairs of eyes at other schools and we know where that those those that student sits and we can see um, that happening across all the samples so we've got the year two and the six year six as well so we can actually make those comparisons so we do that as a whole school with the data after yeah um daisy i might jump to you here as well uh are schools using using it in a similar way that you're working with or um are there any other techniques that they're using 
Yeah, so I think Jeanette mentioned whole class feedback, and that's something we've written about quite a bit. And that's something that's been really popular in England. And it's a really interesting innovation because it's been quite a grassroots innovation. And it's been a way that teachers have responded to some of the the challenges of, you know, just the inefficiency of written feedback. So, you know, I would say probably maybe five, 10 years ago, there was a, a kind of real push to write these very detailed written comments at the bottom of students' writing. And that was incredibly time consuming. Um, and, you know, the thing I'd always say about that is, imagine you're having a driving lesson and imagine your driving instructor, you know, imagine you're like, you're having a driving lesson and you're practicing your parallel parking. And imagine your driving instructor says nothing at the time. And then two weeks later in the post, you get a letter and it says, well done. You found a good place to safely try and park. Unfortunately, you did clip the curb as you were parking. Next time, try and do better. <laughs> like, you know, how yeah. helpful is that? It's not helpful at all to get something yeah. like that two weeks later. And that's kind of this model of extensive written comments at the bottom of pieces of work it's just not just time consuming but it's not very helpful and so the idea behind whole class feedback is that you want to give students something that's a bit more timely you want to give them something that's a bit more kind of in the moment and you want to be able to um give them something they can do that you're not just giving them some comment like well done you did this okay oh what a shame you didn't do that very well you want to actually give them an activity, like an action step that will mean they don't make that error next time. Um, and so the idea behind whole class feedback is that teachers at the end, you know, when they're finished reading a set of, of books or they've read a set of responses, they'll replan their next lesson based on the common strengths and weaknesses they've seen. And so yeah. that's been something that's been really popular in England. Jeanette and I have written an article about it. You know, Jeanette's done a lot of thinking about it too. And I think that's something where there's real potential to, to save time and improve improve feedback. Yeah, so when when teachers are writing that whole class feedback, are they basing that off the um, pieces of writing that they've looked at or are they basing it off their actual class? So when you take part in a comparative judgment assessment, you will, 80% of the time, you'll be judging writing from your school. And 20% of the time, every fifth judgment, the writing is from other schools. And then when you finished, you know, you can go into the system and you can review the writing from your school and your class and, you know, have a look at it again. So we would say where possible, if you can, try and judge at the same time as your colleagues. If you can schedule a staff meeting, that always works well. And then when you finish your judging quota, have a discussion about the strengths and weaknesses of the work that you've seen. And then the class teacher should aim to reteach the next lesson based on those strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, awesome. Um, you know, I've had a, a bit of a go at it at a previous school and um, I found it like almost fun in a way, you know, yeah, as yeah. I was, yeah, yeah, as I was doing it, you know, like I, I think because um, it can be so quick and, you know, you, you almost surprise yourself as to how easy it seems, you know, there, you'll have a few which are, you know, a bit closer, um, but in general, yeah, it, it can, it seems quite easy and, and quite smooth and, free-flowing and, and it's almost like you know you're racing the clock um mm -hmm. in a way uh, you still want to do it properly but yeah you, you know you want to make sure that you're um you're looking at the right things and and i think you surprise yourself that you don't necessarily need that rubric to be able to tell the difference between a good one and a not so good one i think that's exactly it and, and what i would say brendan is you know yeah give it a go yourself and as you've said when you give it a go often that's the feedback we get people will say it's quite fun quite enjoy it so yeah um, Jeanette, what sort of impact have you noticed at your school, Temple So Heights? Uh, so, yeah, it's had a huge impact on us um, and on our, our writing practice. And I suppose for me, um, it's been a real lesson in vulnerability um, because, as I said, uh, you know, I'd spent all that time um, trying to build practice and thinking that what we were doing was fantastic and then... Um, yeah, having to actually look at things really carefully to think about input equaling output and to think about what our students were actually delivering and, and what difference were we all making. So um, for me, it's definitely been that. And then once you start to, I think, be vulnerable and ask some of those questions and 
and look at what else is out there and, and be a little bit curious about it. I think, yeah, we were a bit more open to looking at what would make a difference um, and what we were going to invest in next. So that def that's definitely um, been the practice there. So, yeah, having the opportunity to, and that's where um, it was fantastic to be able to try, you know, the opportunity to try things and to look at them and make those decisions that that was fantastic so to be part of a project where um you know we're just sampling things just having a go having a look trial and error um I'm a big believer in in some of those sorts of um ideas around yeah just trying to make things better and then just moving um being very organic next and 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 seeing what makes a difference and then of course um, over time, you just begin to, we began to realise um, so many other advantages. So, you know, the, the time efficiency factor and the opportunity to bring the discussion about what we all believed um, was the standard that we were working towards. Um, to, yeah, those, those created really rich discussions. So even though, yeah, it is a technology-based assessment, there is a lot of human um, input around it and a lot of discussion goes into it a lot of shared vocabulary came out of it um and yeah we certainly have spent less time arguing around progression points um because we've been able to anchor as I said um what we believe is the standard for each age group we can anchor that to an actual sample so even just having those samples available not just you know every time they come in but yeah we, we've now developed a bit of a collection so those are really rich ways to be thinking about well what's the standard of year four writing um yeah. and yeah even just other things like we things that had not, nothing necessarily to do with curriculum but we noticed for instance that all of our students were beginning narratives with a hi my name is um you know that they were writing very much in that diary of a wimpy kid style and said so that sort of had an impact on the books that we began to think about in terms of our mm. curriculum maps, you know, giving them some richer texts where they're ex experiencing other ways of of other of writing narrative genres. Um, yeah, so I think definitely, um, yeah, reporting, the moderation, the way we teach, um, the instruction, the way we deliver it, and, and yeah, just creating um, that consistency between classrooms. That's been a big part of um, having that data too because we're all sitting there um, you know, looking at it together during that assessment process. And it's very quick and easy. Um, and yeah, we, we find um, that it, it's just made a big difference. And, and I mean, the next step is, um, and this has been an interesting um, journey, is, is having some of our parents now, um, particularly because it's been something that we've talked a lot about on school council, for instance. Um, you know, a lot of our parents are wanting to yeah, have a, a little bit of a look at what this looks like. So, you know, that's perhaps the next, I, don't, I think that possibly um, is something that, that um, yeah, some schools are looking at as well. We've had questions about. Mm. Cool. Uh, so in terms of, you know, now that more schools are starting to get involved across Australia, what sort of trends are you seeing, if any? Daisy, you want to? Yeah, so... Look, I mean, we're relatively early days still. Um, mm -hmm. We've got, you know, we worked, I think, I think in total, we probably had about 200 schools take part in, in one or other of the projects we've run so far. So we're pretty early days. I would say, you know, certainly one of the, the, the trends we're seeing is, which you would hope to see and expect to see, is when students are being assessed over time, their scores going up. But it's always nice to, to see that. That's a positive thing to see. Um, we've started doing some really interesting work where we are comparing scores on comparative judgment with scores on NAPLAN. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, I think, a really fruitful kind of area to investigate. We put a blog out on our, uh, on our website, I think, just before Christmas, where we were looking at comparing a small group of pupils, their comparative judgment scores and a bunch of their NAPLAN scores. And we were looking at a comparison in particular with spelling. So the spelling element of the NAPLAN section, even though it was only a small group, that was really fascinating. So we saw that there was overall, there was a trend that um, students who were, you know, there was a correlation. So students who were better spellers tend to get a better score on the writing. But within that correlation, when we dug into it, it got interesting. There were some students, you know, there were outliers within that. There were some students who were very good spellers who were not getting good writing scores. And there were some student who, you know, I think there was maybe one student who was, didn't do that well on the, on the spelling test, but had produced a good piece of writing that had scored highly. So we're saying overall, um, you know, you are seeing that um, 
overall, uh, in fact, actually, am I getting that wrong? I think it was actually we didn't see that many students who, who weren't good spellers. I have to go back and refresh my memory. But the general message we were seeing is that overall, um, there's that correlation between um, good writing and something like spelling. But within it, there are these kind of outliers. And it's important to investigate those to help us really understand what good writing is. Um, so I think the kind of point we were coming up with with that one, it's, it was that spelling was a necessary but not sufficient condition for good writing. So we do need students to be able to spell correctly. Um, and, and that is important. So we should be teaching it. But it obviously isn't everything. There are lots of other things, too. And actually, I think one of the trends we see both in Australia and just across the board is writing is hard. Writing is one of the hardest tasks we ask students to do. And it is made up of a lot of subtasks that are quite hard in themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's one of the things that we're looking a lot at, trying to unpick writing skill and look at the component skills and think about how we can teach those. I think I think the other thing that we that that is interesting is because um, being outside, you know, when you're part of a school and, and you're just part of your little bubble of what's going on there all of a sudden it gives you a, a, a much bigger picture and you can see that we're all working to a very common construct. And I think it's been interesting, um, yeah, for me to, all, to understand that New South Wales and Victoria, Western Australia, like we all have um, slightly different curriculums. Um, however, teachers as a rule are all working to that same, you know, a very similar construct of ideas. And that extends also to the other global projects that we've seen as well. So, um, you know, the same things that are making a difference to students here in, you know, to, which to me is about sentence level work um, and focusing on those small skills, the things that you can control before you release them to write. Those things are true for Australian children in every state um, in the same way that we're seeing or, you know, are true for projects globally. So I think, you know, that that's great news in, in that we can see what's what's making a difference elsewhere we can now sort of say we can make some assumptions that those practices are good practices and they're worth bringing in, um, you know, and that's difficult, I think, in our system because we have so much autonomy. Um, schools have so much autonomy to choose their own direction. Um, and as Daisy said, with writing, because it is such a difficult concept, um, we have been a little bit all over the place and schools, I think, are struggling to pull some things together if they don't have a direction and we're not necessarily given a direction, we're given a, a standard, but mm. how to get there, we're, we're not sort of given the roadmap. So um, knowing that we've got data that says Australian children do need the small building blocks, they need the grammar, they need the spelling, um, they need punctuation, they need knowledge of a sentence. Um, you know, knowing that I think gives schools a, a really good map, uh, roadmap for, for the way forward. So that's that's to me is what's exciting that we can all benefit from it. Yeah, you know, it does sound really exciting. I think one of the other things that you you, you both touched on tonight is that um, what you're getting out of comparative judgment is not just the the data from the assessment, but you're getting back time, and so it's actually giving you time to now start to think about your teaching and learning process and what sort of um, things you want to be putting into your instruction. Uh, which yeah, by the sounds, but Janet, you know, you, you're been able to um, put a lot of thinking time into that and develop some, um, you know, pretty pretty strong instructional routines that that teachers are using and and you know you're seeing those results um, improve as well. So yes, yeah, great to see and um, great to hear how you're using comparative judgment and and then leading into um, effective instruction. Um, as we kind of start to head to the end of our podcast today i uh, just wanted to know you know I'll, I'll, I'll go to you first jeanette but you know what are your thoughts on the current state of education and and what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have uh you know that that maybe has been really um important to your own development um or you know maybe the common misconceptions that you've come across um i think one of the interesting things about being involved um with no more marking is that um, the assessment it becomes about a standard. And I think I used to believe, and many teachers are part of this thinking, and there's, you know, I was there too, is that there's something creative and part of, of teaching that's really important where you, you create your own assessments, you know, that that's part of the creativity of thinking or, you know, that designing assessments is something that we, that we do. And I suppose I've realised that um, 
you know, assessment is about a standard. And so if we can, if we can find ways of assessing to a standard, um, you know, we can actually focus more on the teaching and the instruction and, and then an assessment process like comparative judgment that provides data that's, you know, efficient, that it's reliable, there's no bias, it's rigorous, it's honest. Um, that just gives you so much more um, knowledge of whether what you're doing is making a difference. Um, and I think that's, that's been a really big shift for me. And, and one of the things, the great thing, the auto mark, which is another thing that, that's sort of new to the Australian market, but the idea of multiple choice questions, which are linked to, um, which any year level can use, it's the same assessment for any year level, that, that really turns it on its head for me because you could give somebody in year two and somebody in year 10 the exact same assessment and you can all of a sudden match two students of different age groups and different year levels against a standard and see where they're at. And that's a much more honest way of understanding um, where a student sits. And I think we find it really difficult in our country and, um, to know to know exactly where they sit. And that's why, um, yeah, that, that's why the assessment and the way we do it, it's got to be honest and it's got to be rigorous. So, Yeah, great point. Um, Daisy, you know, what about yourself? How, what, what are your current thoughts and education you know not just here in australia but you know worldwide and um you know what bits of knowledge have had a big impact on your own development yeah so i think the, the big reason i you know i was a classroom teacher and interested in the curriculum and now i work full-time on assessment and i think the big reason for me why i'm so interested in assessment and why it's so important is because unless you have good measurement you you, you don't know whether what you're doing is working or not so that for me is is fundamentally important. And what does encourage me is I do see a sign that systems in the UK, the US, Australia, kind of globally are realizing this and are realizing that if you don't, if you if you're not measuring and you've not got some idea of, of how the system is doing and how a student is doing, it's really hard to improve practice. So I think there are encouraging signs, as I say, of 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 of, of lots of people realizing this. And I think one of the reasons why schools teachers are choosing to take part in comparative judgment is they realise the, the the truth of it too. So I think before we started recording, Brendan, you and I were chatting about how it feels like there is um, a really kind of maybe a purpose, very purposeful group of, of educators in Australia at the minute and people are thinking really seriously about improving practice. I would say that's certainly my experience back home in England. It does feel like there's that. Uh, a really quite a grassroots core of people who are really thinking through practice in intelligent ways and thinking about the research and as I say realizing that assessment is a, a, a really important part of that so I feel very optimistic about the future of education I think there are really interesting things going on globally uh, and I think there almost is a global conversation about education and evidence and the importance of um, the importance of assessment and these kinds of things so I'm, I feel kind of pretty optimistic that, that things are going in the right direction and we're going to see, you know, some, some really positive change over the next few years. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what you guys have next coming up in, in you know, not just to do with uh, no more marking, but um, it, it's, you, you've both got exciting projects always happening and I know that I've just caught you at the start of your Australian tour, Daisy. So, um, you know, what I guess what can... How can people get in, in contact with you and, and what should they be looking out for? Well, we've got an article on our blog that summarises all the places I'm going to be visiting the next few weeks. So if people are interested in uh, coming along, you know, talking to me and Jeanette in person, uh, having a, a comparative judgment demo in person, I would say take a look at our blog for all the dates and the, the times of those. Um, so that would be, be that. Uh, if you can't make it along to any of those, we've got lots of recordings of webinars on our website. So, you know, have a look at those. Have a look at the nomomarking.com website. Keep an eye. We've got a dedicated Australian blog with insights from our Australian um, projects as well. So I say keep an eye on our blog, keep an eye on our website, uh, keep an eye on our Twitter. We, you know, we put things out on there all the time. Um, and if, you know, you're interested and you want to chat, get in touch with us on our website. We're always more than willing to, to kind of talk through questions with people, um, talk to them about their, their, how they find it. So, um, yeah, you know, always happy to chat to people who, who would like to, to hear more about this. Yeah, and in terms of no more marking, um, are there kind of growth areas there as well? Uh, in, in what sense? In terms of, you know, schools, schools taking part in it? Oh, in terms of, I guess, as a product, um, yeah. you know, are there 
um, new offerings that are, are going to be available or yeah, uh, developments? Jeanette, yeah, Jeanette alluded to like the, the, the newest one. We, we, where we've got, yeah. So we started with no more marketing comparative judgment five years ago. Um, yeah. We've introduced about two years ago, we introduced these two separate websites, one called The Writing Hub that has all our writing resources, one called Automark. Um, that's a bit newer. That hosts some um, multiple choice questions and it lets you, it automatically marks them as well. The newest, newest, newest thing we've got in the pipeline, which is so new that, uh, you know, it's not even, it's really just being trialed at the moment, is artificial intelligence assessment. So adding in the potential for artificial intelligence to do some of the judging. Now, this is very, very new. We're using um, the OpenAI GPT-3 um, large language model. You know, people use it as chat GPT. That's what people are familiar with. We're looking at whether that's possible to use that to do a bit of judging, um, to maybe, you know, um, uh, cut down on workload even more. And also we're looking at whether it can provide some feedback, uh, you know, some of the helpful feedback I'm talking about, like some useful next steps. So this is very early days. We're not 100% sure, you know, exactly how it's going to work. We're running a small trial um, at the minute in England. Uh, if that works, I think we might try a bigger one, uh, perhaps with some Australian schools. So if that is something that interests you, Again, there's plenty on our blog about some of the research we've been doing in the past month or so. And yeah, just keep an eye on our all of our um, kind of Twitter feed and blog for opportunities if you'd like to get involved. Sounds great. You know, um, really exciting stuff that you've got happening. And uh, I just want to thank you, uh, especially Daisy. You know, you're probably still suffering from jet lag today. <laughs> barely, um, barely. <laughs> yeah, so thanks a lot for giving up your time. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to meeting you in a couple of weeks uh, in person. Fantastic. Yeah, you too, Brendan. Um, it's been really good to chat. Really enjoyed my time here so far. And yeah, looking forward to meeting more people. Thanks, Daisy and Jeanette. Thanks, Brendan. Wow, what an amazing conversation. Both Daisy and Jeanette were able to offer so many great points. Here are my key takeaways. Assessments operationalize a curriculum. The importance of knowledge. Why comparative judgment is a more effective way of marking than using traditional methods such as rubrics. Why rubrics give us an illusion of a shared language. How whole class feedback can be more effective and efficient than traditional ways of providing feedback. Writing is hard. Unless you have good measurement, you don't know if what you're doing is working or not. I was also able to get a couple of scoops. The first one being about how No More Marking is currently seeing how AI could be used to help cut down workload for teachers through assessing and feedback. The second scoop was on what the eighth myth would be if a second edition of Myths About Education was released, with the myth being that we need to set assessments that computers can't solve. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I'd really appreciate it if you shared it with your colleagues. One of the reasons for starting this podcast was to get knowledge to teachers that teachers need, and this chat certainly provided plenty of that. Please feel free to get in contact with me about any questions or suggestions. Finally, I've got a number of really knowledgeable guests coming on, so make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of these conversations. As always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.